1: Well, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Lachlan McNamee, and today I'll be speaking with uh, Dr. David Temin, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Michigan. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Fresh Off the Press uh, Remapping Sovereignty, Decolonization, and Self Determination in North American Indigenous Political Thought, which just came out at the University of Chicago Press. Uh, In the book, it's a really sweeping and an amazing inca- account of 20th twentieth century indigenous intellectual thought uh, and how indigenous activists um, re refashioned the idea of decolonization to disentangle it from the idea that, you know, uh, peoples need their own state to instead think more broadly about uh, decolonization and as Uh, restitution of land and most importantly um, care of the earth and sustainability Uh, but the book uh, also highlights the tensions in indigenous thought around issues of civil rights uh, treaty and how indigenous thinkers have um, have thought about these issues over the last century Uh, so welcome uh, uh, Dr Temin and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast
0: thanks so much for having me um and thank you for that lovely inter- introduction Lachlan. Sure.
1: um well do you do you want to, let's start by um you know just explaining
0: why you decided to to write this book yeah sure so um i um wrote this book for a few reasons so broadly my research focuses on um, uh, American political thought, Native American studies and politics, um, and I situate um, this work within kind of a broader set of investigations of the role of of the historical role of empire in structuring modern pro- political thought, as well as um, anti-colonial thought as a kind of response to the legacies and structural ongoing structural patterns of empire. And I'm interested in how these um, sort of shape the way that we should think about social and environmental justice and central concepts in political theory, like land, sovereignty, and citizenship. And so this book is an extension of of some of these um, research commitments. Um, So I I decided to write the book for for a few different reasons. Um, So the first is that I felt within political theory, which is an academic subfield of political science, um, there's been some engagement with Indigenous thoughts, um, but I was a bit dissatisfied with the way that the field has taken up some of the politics and political ideas and concepts uh, that have been uh, theorized by different actors from Indigenous societies or have been sort of uh, imposed or imputed by uh, non-Indigenous political theorists onto Indigenous societies. So specifically what I found was that um Indigenous thinkers are often treated um, by, uh, especially non-indigenous political theorists, as sort of generic figureheads for a particular concept, or as cases through which to test the kind of normative legitimacy or sort of flexibility of different political concepts that we, as political theorists, have already come up with. And I found this approach to be very limiting, and and moreover not very insightful in trying to understand what um, different important indigenous thinkers have tried to do um, from their own perspective so my book really turns to indigenous political thinkers by studying their political thought in context and in this sense i I try to reconstruct some different intellectual lineages um, and to attend to some of the valuable insights they offer um, both as a way of um, understanding their um, outlining their intrinsic importance and for the way that they might change the way that we think about central concepts in Western political thought. So I really try to situate them historically. Um, So since I'm a a political theorist, I was also um, especially interested in studying these different thinkers with the kind of depth and specificity that is required when placing thinkers in context. And for me, that meant both the context of indigenous North America, but I was also especially interested in the kind of global conversations that these thinkers were having. They were, many of them were uh, connected throughout really the 20th century, even um, even uh, before and after World War One, to the broader conversations about self-determination and what eventually became the global decolonization movement after the Second World War. Um, so... In sort of studying this um, and and bringing this together as bringing these thinkers together as a tradition, I show how they both infused their ideas with concepts from their own communities, from their broader conversations with other indigenous intellectuals and communities, as well as what they uh, exchange with other thinkers of decolonization elsewhere and more mainstream currents of political thought. Um, and so I bring these all together in what I refer to as uh, political theories of indigenous decolonization. Um, and then finally I had more presentist kind of political, um, reasons for writing the book. Um, indigenous philosophies and political practices have, uh, the potential to really deeply reframe the way that the problem of climate justice and climate change is typically encountered but i think that if non-indigenous scholars like myself sort of stay at a relatively surface level analysis don't deeply engage with thinkers in context then it risks sort of uh we risk sort of plucking these concepts out and borrowing them in a kind of superficial uh Uh, manner. Uh, So even if they may be attractive or appealing concepts that are important, there is a risk of sort of instrumental, overly instrumentalizing them and not placing them in context. So for me, what I do is I, I try to focus on, I try to expand on these different political theorists and political theories of indigenous decolonization, not only as kind of responses to a certain set of power relations, but also as part of an ongoing lineage and ongoing set of conversations in which what's at stake is inheriting, reinventing, deeply debating, and really actively making and reconstructing Indigenous society's own political outlooks. So that's, 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 those are the three main, main reasons behind the project. Yeah, you can see that all come through
1: in the the final product. Uh, And, you know, it's refreshing to to read a book on political theory that doesn't look to you know roles to solve all of our problems and um, <laughs> yeah. treats uh, activists and it's very really, you know people who aren't at big fancy universities as serious thinkers in the in intellectual tradition. Uh, in that sense, it's 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 really excellent. Um, but let's get into the book. Um, so you started the book with the um no dapple movement um so why did you why did you do that what is this movement and why did you think to start it with that movement
0: yeah so as uh listeners may recall um the no dapple movement was a really um powerful gathering of um lakota dakota and nakota people um of the Shakoin, which is the Great Sioux Nation in English, um, other indigenous peoples from throughout the United States and really throughout the Americas, um, non-indigenous peoples. And the occasion for this gathering was that they came together to oppose the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and the Dakota Access Pipeline was... Um, uh, uh, a pipeline that would run oil from all the way from the Canadian tar sands um, down through to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and uh, originally it was slated to go through Bismarck, North, North Dakota. The pipeline was redirected to go through um, just off of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribes um, reservation um, over its only water source, which is Lake Oahe, um, which also is right near the Cheyenne River Sioux reservation. Um, and the, the Important point of contention was not only that this would affect the only water source, but that these were lands um, designated um, as um, part of unceded Lakota territory in the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty that the Lakota um, signed with the United States. Um, so I became, first of all, this was a kind of important um, uh, movement and and political moment, I think, um, and over the course of the movement, I had really closely tracked the media coverage. And some of my reflections on where to go with the book began by noticing a couple trends in that coverage. So, one was there was this, um, at times, what seemed to be almost a kind of shocked sense. Uh, that the movement had sort of come out of nowhere. Like there was this sense that this didn't have any precedent. It had no history. You know, where did this in- inter-indigenous sort of massive gathering come from? This was, of course, indigenous outlets did not cover it this way, but but um, majority non-indigenous and a lot of mainstream out- outlets did. And of course, there is a kernel of truth to this. This was very much a, a generational gathering, but. I wanted to suggest that it had really deep political and philosophical roots in the kinds of things that the water protectors were saying in these in these mobilizations, and that that really extended out, you know, throughout the 20th century. And, you know, my story starts in the 20th century, but you could, you know, certainly go back um, uh, much further. Um, So I wanted to show, you know, that there is this existing political and philosophical kind of infrastructure that was really underlying the kinds of um the kinds of uh mobilizations, the kinds of repertoires, the kinds of deep philosophical ideas that people on the front lines were were talking about. Um so so that was the the first thing that I noticed. The second thing was that The media really had a lot of difficulty, with a few exceptions, um, really fully contextualizing the kind of language and self-understandings informing the political discourses and practices that Lakota people and other um, Indigenous peoples and even non-Indigenous peoples who were sort of borrowing these languages were, were using. So, for example, what you would see in outlets like the New York Times was the frequent use of the language of protest and civil disobedience which has this familiar resonance to american audiences um, through the civil rights movement um the the problem with this was that those gathered there um, explicitly and self-consciously described themselves as protectors of the water um, so they would they explicitly would say we're were protectors, not protesters, Um, and they described what they were doing less as a protest and more as a form of ceremony. Um, And so their focus on the violation of treaty rights, jurisdiction, sovereignty, um, the protection of water as a kind of relative um, for some, um, was a, a kind of whole way of thinking about politics, a way of thinking about self-determination that just didn't fit within the paradigms that um, these mainstream newspapers were trying to pin them into. Um, so I, I also thought you know given you know the way that this had played out in the media I I ended up, coming to, around to the idea that no Dapple would be a really nice jumping off point to establish kind of two basic aims of the book. So the first was, you know, historical, which was, I want to show that background, historical, in-depth infrastructure um, that underlay this movement And in doing so to reconstruct some key figures and conceptual frameworks from indigenous societies in North America as authors of kind of important and neglected bodies of anti-colonial thought. And these are valuable in their own right, but they also sort of are essential to even understanding the kind of context and framing that these movements are bringing to the table when they talk about questions of sovereignty, treaty, land, jurisdiction, and all that. Um, So my second aim was really to try to show how these practices have been rooted in a specific set of uh, contested, debated, but nonetheless um, sort of specific conceptions of decolonization. And so at the center of these understandings in my book, as as you mentioned, is really the kind of meaning um, and normative status of sovereignty. And uh, as sovereignty basically understood in many ways, as an effect and a practice of settler societies, colonization and dispossession of indigenous lands, uh, kind of an outcome of processes of colonial conquest and territorial occupation. So as a result, I really then focus on how indigenous political theories of decolonization try to disentangle their self-determination, both from the institutions of state sovereignty and some of the kind of underlying philosophical foundations of the concept of sovereignty as a kind of overarching worldview or a way of of thinking about politics or framing the way that politics has to be um, more generally.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the two things there to pick up on. This notion of protection, protection of water, protection of the land, seems to be really key to indigenous conceptions of sovereignty. Is, is, that, is it right to say that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I'll answer in a sort of roundabout way. Um, And I I sort of make two, I make a distinction between two. So the the metaphor of the book, this idea of remapping sovereignty, um, I make a distinction between two kinds of remapping sovereignty. And especially what I'm interested in is how these um, indigenous conceptions of collective self-determination and social and political transformation change the way that um, or challenge the way that sovereignty is thought about in Western political thought and sort of Western state building and politics. So the concept of sovereignty in Western political thought is, is yes, is very distinct from this notion of, of care or care. Uh, custodianship for land. Um, It's closely bound up um, with a certain conception of what constitutes political order. Um, Going back to Max Weber, it's the ability to project power over a particular territory within a particular domain. And it requires a notion of a self, whether that be a state or a democratic people um, that is separate and independent from other collective or individual selves. Moreover, it requires um, um a kind of positing an unlimited, um, undivided, and unaccountable power. And although we often think of this as, you know, we think of these sort of hard faces of sovereignty as sort of more associated with like authoritarianism or authoritarian regime types, um, the uses of unfettered state power. It's also the case, um, as some political theorists have shown in other work, that popular and democratic sovereignty have themselves been forged through um, practices that similarly um, create a, a self that is sovereign in the sense that they're allowed to, settlers are allowed to seize indigenous land and labor for their own benefits. Um, and and so in the case of the United States, the entire process of territorial expansion in the United States is The expansion of a popular demos that claims for itself the sovereign right um, to land. And so it's inherently expansionist and colonial in this sense. Um, So I tend to think of sovereignty, at least in the way I contextualize it, as having this relatively stable colonial core and expression in colonial forms of domination across, you know, these different lineages and regime types, despite the fact that, you know, we can note, you know internal distinctions uh, among them in other respects. So I I try to make a distinction in my work um, in relation to this kind of dominant notion um, between, as I said, sort of two ways of remapping sovereignty. And I talk about a uh, struggle over the terms of sovereignty. And I talk about a struggle to move beyond the conceptual logics of sovereignty. So um, to sort of circle back to your question that, that uh, second one, a struggle to sort of go beyond the conceptual logics of sovereignty. That's much closer to that idea of replacing sovereignty, or at the very least, kind of struggling for different kinds of social relations within sovereignty. Um, uh, uh, that 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 I, I try to think through. So th- this first one is really more a struggle against the institutional and structural domination of settler sovereignty over indigenous peoples which occurs both through kind of state power and more informal mechanisms of rule um often the, the commodification of of land um and markets and land um so the pers- from the perspective of the thinkers i work with this is a project of trying to disentangle collective, se- collective self-determination from the sovereign state and um this requires sort of transforming both domestic and international orders. Since states are uh, legitimate insofar as they are recognized by one another, um, they're the repositories of, in an international order of sort of legitimate authority. Um, so this calls for a kind of broader structural transformation or predation of the often sacrosanct status attributed to the territory of sovereign states. So freedom and deep decolonization for indigenous peoples then entails the creation of far more pluralistic systems, which would um, realize their international right to self-determination as peoples because they have historically in effect been been oppressed by states, including states um, governing um, according to some nominally democratic order in many ways. Um, so this is what I call a struggle over the terms of sovereignty. It's a struggle um, against the colonial implementation of sovereignty. And in that sense, it's, it's a way of, it's more about distributing or reallocating sovereignty or changing the location of sovereignty um, rather than necessarily overturning sovereignty as a concept. It's sort of moving it outside of the parameters of the state. Um, so this, the second um, Form of remapping sovereignty, which, which really gets to your question, is what I call moving beyond the conceptual logics of sovereignty. And this requires basically something a little bit more abstract and intangible, I would say, which is. Reconceiving some of the core philosophical premises that go along with what we typically think of as the kind of core uh, package of institutional features of modern political rule, the modern state and Western thought. So what I argue is core to many of these thinkers that I that I that I explore in the book is that they reject some kind of core, the, the, the package, the worldview that goes along with sovereignty entirely. So. If sovereignty entails the projection of power um, through the formation of political will uh, and the projection of that will, so to speak, over a territory through various institutional mechanisms, um, that will is theoretically unlimited. So the people or the institutions within within those borders are licensed to do what they wish with their lands within that, those specifically demarcated borders. And it sort of treats land as something that can be mastered, right? Land is a, is, is a resource, it's territory, it's property. Um, all of these things are sort of bound together. Um, by contrast, some of the thinkers I engage with and what we began to talk about in some of these different understandings that appear at in, in that appeared in the NoDapple movement uh, among the water protectors was that um Self-determination is not a matter of separation of a self that rules over, but rather can itself be construed as an interdependent relationship by which a collectivity exercises its freedom by establishing sort of reciprocal responsibilities to take care of the land. So one way of putting this is that the liberation of the self and the, the capacity to determine oneself is always bound up and enmeshed in these deep relations with others that allow the self to flourish. Um, So one prominent idiom here is that of kinship. Um, So many indigenous peoples, and um, I talk in my book about um, Ella Deloria, George Manuel, um, uh, as among these thinkers who use this idea, but the idea is that humans are in uh, kinship relations, not only with other humans, but with many creatures that constitute the living earth in their territory. So this is a very deeply relational grammar of political authority. Um, It embeds human communities within webs of ecological relation and essentially confronts and rejects the notion of sovereignty as Uh, or know the notion of political rule as such as the unlimited and independent projection of power over space, which sort of renders anything that's not human um, and oftentimes uh, humans who are subjected um, into inert matter um, to, to be used dominated um, disposed of what have you. So in this sense, yes, there's, there's, there are these, um, uh, efforts that I try to unpack here that seek in some ways to go beyond what we might think of as the the concept of sovereignty itself um so so that's yes and 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 at the core of that is these ideas of care and kinship yeah yeah
1: thank um yeah so it's it's really fascinating the way that both indigenous peoples have thought about being enmeshed in relationships both with environment but they're also of course they're enmeshed in relationships with the settler colonial state Uh, and you talk a lot in the book about in the debates i suppose around indigenous intellectuals about how to engage with these settler states how to engage with the canadian state with the american state and it seemed like there were a lot of debates in the 1920s and 30s around whether indigenous peoples should seek american or canadian citizenship Uh, is it fair to say that Indigenous writers um, at the time, like Sikala Shah, saw citizenship in the settler colonial state as a positive move, like a a means to obtain legal protection from uh, abuses by colonial actors? Or did did they see citizenship as a kind of regressive backward step?
0: Yeah, so I, I think the the um the former was was certainly Zikala Shaw's view. Although I, I do think um what I try to unpack in in my first chapter it's is that she's sort of embedded in a number of different constituencies, uh involving intellectuals from different communities, um, who really took a range of different views about citizenship. So just a, a bit of background on her. Um uh, because she's just a fascinating character uh, so zikala shah was a yankton dakota she grew up on the standing roxy reservation um, she was educated in the indian boarding school system um, she was like a lot of the thinkers in this book she was kind of a a, a multi-talented you know Renaissance person. She was a fiction writer, a violinist, an activist, an organizer, um, beyond anything either of us can imagine. Um, um, So she became very deeply involved in the Society of American Indians as the editor of their magazine in 1917, um, and then later in other um, uh, sort of activist and literary ventures. Um, And the Society of American Indians was this progressive um, kind of pan-Indigenous organization, which... um, they formed in 1911, and they advocated for what they perceived um, the interests of indigenous peoples to be. And for many of them, some version of full citizenship and enfranchisement was was an important piece of that. Um, but the The important background to this is that in the early 20th century, the U.S. government had classified indigenous peoples as wards of the state. Um, So the Indian Bureau, Bureau, the kind of bureaucracy that oversaw life on the reservation that Native Americans or indigenous peoples had been confined to um, in uh, by the time of the late 19th century, essentially exercised arbitrary and quasi-dictatorial power in the name of the protection of sort of childlike peoples. This was the idea of wars, that they were incapable of exercising self-government. And the crux of the debate happening within the Society of American Indians was you know essentially whether the bureau should be abolished or reformed? How to how, whether to work within the existing structures or try to do something else? Um, and many of these circles, you know, very interestingly adapted um, ideas from African American political thought, from um, sort of American republicanism, um, and they used. Uh, the idiom of slavery to try to capture the kind of collective domination they face. So when they talked about the abolition of the bureau, they were using and picking up on um, the, the the idea of slavery. They they recognized that that their own slavery was different from the one experienced by African-Americans. It had to do with dispossession and incarceration onto smaller and smaller plots of land. So that that element of bondage was, was central to what they were talking about, coupled with this kind of political subjection to um, the Indian Bureau. Um, so Zikhala Shah, who, who always could write a line, said behind this sham protection have been at all times great wealth in the form of indian funds to be subverted right so sham sham protection was was that cloaked these forms of theft and violence was was really central to her thinking so the the move towards citizenship is kind of complex in this context because in effect what was being proposed um by the U.S. government. And eventually, in, uh, Indigenous peoples were enfranchised in 1924 under the Indian Citizenship Act. But um, the results of this was was not necessarily to revoke their status as wards. And in fact, there was a sense that both kind of juridically and sort of more diffusely um, in the kind of popular understandings, that there was this compatibility between Indigenous peoples becoming citizens and yet remaining wards subjected to the kind of whims of the American government and the Indian Bureau bureaucracy. And so some people in sort of describing Zikala Shah's views would say, Oh, well, she she wanted citizenship. So therefore, she was a kind of assimilationist. Um, And there are good reasons to think this. Um, She um, would appear in public with um, American flags in the backdrop because she wanted to look as patriotic as possible. So she was very good at kind of kind of uh, playing on certain certain images for when in her advocacy. Um, But I I actually argue looking at her letters and writings that she was doing something very different, um, although she was very strategic about it. Um, So in the context of the idea that citizenship didn't negate wardship she was really trying to rethink the entire purpose of citizenship of u.s citizenship for indigenous peoples um so rather than citizenship implying a kind of form of cultural assimilation or you know becoming the kind of um, american citizen who was normative heterosexual christian Et cetera, uh, property owning uh, and so on. She basically said that citizenship was not something that indigenous peoples needed to earn. it was something they ought already to have had. <laughs> they were first on the land and it was just a slate of constitutional protections and rights that had to, that could be used sort of instrumentally and strategically um, and she viewed it not only as a kind of individual possession that each you know indigenous person would be enfranchised and could vote etc, but also also, as a weapon in a collective struggle. Um, so she argued that, you know, um, indigenous peoples could both be citizens of the United States and could use that status and kind of leverage it in order to do things like make claims about violated treaties, um, recover stolen lands, um, govern themselves, in effect. Uh, De- democratically on their own she was talking about self government already in um you know the the 1920s um and she even was following the aftermath of the Versailles conference in 1919 uh, following the League of Nations and said quite bluntly that you know american sovereignty was an artificial imposition that kind of needed to be rejected in favor of what she described as more universal forms of freedom um, and justice. Um, So I talk about this kind of a little bit cheekily as a politics of citizenship without civilization. So that is to say, um, you know, that, that she wanted citizenship, she wanted to use it as a tool, but she wanted to get rid of all of the colonial both conceptual and practical baggage that was attached to it when it was really in effect foisted on indigenous peoples rather than actively chosen um so she her her position is is pretty complex and and she sort of is is situated among a number of different positions that are coming out of different communities and different conversations. So I think one important position to mention here is many nations of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy argued that American citizenship could like could not but be a form of colonial domination. So many just completely rejected citizenship in the context of World War I that, that had to do with rejecting conscription um, in the Canadian context. And, and I believe even in the US, although I have to look that they wanted written, they wanted, because the treaty was with the queen they wanted written, um, a written request from the queen, and then they would serve to fulfill the terms of the treaty. So even in fulfilling the terms of the treaty, it was as sovereign nations who had signed the treaty, not as citizens of these countries. Um, so my my overall point is that citizenship. You know, when we're sort of when we have a liberal narrative of citizenship that's about you know progressive inclusion um, and so on, we tend to overlook the ways that citizenship can be implemented in and differentially experienced in these different ways, both to enforce colonialism, but also in in complex and and sort of impure ways to, to struggle against it as well.
1: Yeah, so it seems by the 1960s, the conversations around assimilation and citizenship had evolved quite a lot. So the new generation of indigenous intellectuals like Vine Deloria Jr. um, had begun to see this desire for citizenship, uh, equal rights as maybe misguided, um, suggesting that the extension of citizenship to indigenous peoples serve um, some kind of function of actually reproducing colonization, as you said before. So why was that and what were indigenous thinkers like Deloria instead arguing for in the 1960s?
0: Yeah, great. Um, so, um, Indigenous peoples had been formally um, and more or less um, unilaterally enfranchised in, in the 1920s, um, although there were still obstacles to to voting and 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 so on. Um, and so, Vine Deloria Jr., who ended up being a, an incredibly important leader and intellectual. Um, In indigenous movements, especially in the United States, um, he was writing and sort of active um, as a as a as an activist in the midst of the civil rights movement, where the language of equal rights of citizens the language of civic inclusion was an important tool for African American civil rights leaders and movements. And what Deloria worried about was that in the public mind that these ideas could really be watered down and just sort of applied willy-nilly to indigenous peoples um, in service of destroying their collective existence, um, their treaty rights, their land rights, and so on. Um, So Deloria was the, the... leader of the national, um, the executive director of the National Congress for American Indians, which is a rel- relatively new organization. It was formed formed in 1944. It was only about 10 years old when he took up the, the leadership role in 1954. And essentially, the National Congress of American Indians was fighting against this policy called termination, um, which was a policy to, um, well, it's right there in the word, terminate, um, destroy the collective status of tribes, um, strip away remaining collective lands. um, And this had really disastrous effects. Um, It was Uh, quite, uh, quite cynical, it was sort of spearheaded by Western senators, who were in effect, sort of using the language of citizenship and civil rights and sort of arguing, you know, in indigenous peoples, Indians need to be assimilated into the mainstream of American culture, They, they, they sort of don't have their rights yet, which was not really the case in the way that they were describing at least and so that was used in effect to um uh, you know as as you phrase it reproduce colonization like steal land and resources um so it was a kind of cynical ploy um in in using the the sort of rhetoric of especially liberal civil rights um but it was very effective and Deloria worried that it would shape the way that the public sort of then thought about uh, indigenous peoples, So he really brought a focus on indigenous peoples as separate nations with historical and ongoing treaty relationships, albeit frequently violated treaty relationships, um, with, um, uh, the, the, the United, with nation states like the United States. So, uh, Deloria was not among those who thought it was sort of practical to reject or withdraw from U.S. citizenship as a sort of on the ground matter. Um, But he was thinking of sort of these multi-layered citizenships where there would be um, different forms of belonging and citizenship and rights that pertain to Indigenous peoples as collectives, um, as opposed to as individuals. Um, so I, I talk about the the way this played out um, in terms of arguments about treaties in, in my second chapter, and really at the international level, his ideas sort of encouraged kinds of transformation that rejected sort of the containment of indigenous peoples to settler states, and instead really envisioned treaties as the grounds for. A renewed political imaginary, a renewed p- political practice, which would create more um, and represent more horizontal social relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Um, so in this respect, he didn't exactly um, reject citizenship, but he saw how citizenship could be this kind of um, colonial instrument that was always um, uh, dangerous in a way for Indigenous peoples because it could always be used to deny their status as you know as peoples with a separate slate of rights, separate self understandings, and and so on.
1: Mm. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because uh, in the referendum on Australia's um, uh, potentially Indigenous voice to Parliament, that same rhetoric was used by conservative politicians, the, the rhetoric of colorblindness or racial equality to, um, to basically suggest that, um, you know, why should we be giving special rights to, to certain peoples? We should be trying to make everyone equal. So it's interesting the way that, um, I suppose, colorblindness or racial equality can be used for conservative political ends as much as for um, progressive ends. Um, and But you also talk about another yeah. writer, the same period, uh, George Manuel, who, um, who in the 1970s was also critical of the idea that uh, Indian peoples in Canada should just demand cultural protections and equal voting rights, Um, this kind of of colorblind idea, just all become part of the multicultural Canada, uh, analogous to any other ethnic group. So what was uh, Manuel's alternative political vision?
0: Yeah, um, so, Manuel was an important um, Sakpamuk, or Shushwap is the the, uh, Anglicization um, leader of indigenous movements in Canada um, from the 1950s until his death um, in the 1980s. Um, He was the first president of Canada's National Indian Brotherhood, which was later um, the the Assembly of First Nations, which is sort of the main political vehicle of Canadian uh, Aboriginal peoples, First Nations. Um, he founded the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, which was um, in, an international indigenous sort of organizing body. He referred to it as, or sort of aspirationally, as the United Nations of the Fourth World. Um, and so, th- this is my my third chapter, and I'm I'm really I'm talking about the Canadian context, which, as you say, um, there was much more of an appeal to something like multiculturalism, um, in part because of. The important status of public discourse and debate about um, the French Quebecois um, uh, minority struggle for collective autonomy and potentially even sovereignty. Um, and so um, the Canadian state, especially under the first, the first Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, kind of Began to offer what became a, a not only just a public policy, but almost a kind of public philosophy that shaped the way that public discourse took place in Canada, which was really about the ability of diverse groups to express themselves culturally in Canadian society. Um, at the same time that this was happening, which seemed to sort of potentially expand the the diversity of the Canadian project, um, the Trudeau administration proposed uh, what was called the White Paper in 1969, which was basically the kind of Canadian equivalent, you know, 15, 20 years later of what the U.S. had already done in the form of termination, as as we discussed, which was an effort to, you know, eliminate collective status um, get rid of the act that that governed the relations between Indigenous people in the state, which is called the Indian Act, which um, and, and then and any sort of markers of collectivity, treaty rights, the collective ownership of land, and the the, the 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 it never sort of made it into policy. It was a white paper because there was such a a, a massive pushback from Indigenous leaders, and the policy was shelved. Um, and um, so, in both his activism and his writing, uh, Manuel argued that the basic problem that Indigenous peoples kind of faced were questions, yes, of culture, but culture as mediated through questions of sovereignty, the dispossession of land, treaties. Um, Manuel um, coined the term uh, resurgence, um, and he which is sort of now this staple, especially of Indigenous political thought in Canada, um, to describe Indigenous societies' reclamation of their history, values, their self-determination against against and sort of as an alternative to um, their incorporation into the Canadian multicultural state-building project. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the one hand, Manuel's political vision sort of rejected Canadian sovereignty. On the other hand, he very interestingly was arguing that it would fulfill a truer vision of multiculturalism than the one offered by Canada insofar as land itself was this central, meaningful, cultural, and political category for indigenous peoples, um, so that the struggle for the return of land couldn't really be separated at all from a uh, politics that would revolve around cultural freedom and cultural expression, as was the, the kind of public discourse um, of Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Manuel was arguing that land itself was this important medium for indigenous peoples and that indigenous peoples have these caretaking relationships with land um and it's interesting i mean he um oftentimes when when people might might think about sort of these ideas they might think about something sort of from the past or archaic or something and what i find really fascinating about Manuel is that when he was uh, coming up with this idea of resurgence um, from the beginning it was a kind of highly optimistic futurist kind of global vision. He described it as wedding our own tradition and values with the methods, knowledge, and technology of global civilization throughout our lifetime. Um, so he was arguing that, you know, land was central to indigenous culture and was kind of this foundation for self-determination at the same time that he was saying, you know, this isn't, this is active now, and this is a matter of building towards the future rather than sort of re- reviving a past, right? Um, so this is, a, a, again, you know, as we sort of talked about at, at the, the very beginning, like this was a deeply ecological vision of self-determination, and it was one that kind of tried to refuse um, the way that the Canadian state was trying to incorporate indigenous peoples um, both into the constitutional framework and both and into understandings of property and sovereignty and culture that were kind of being mapped on to um, indigenous peoples themselves.
1: Yeah. Um, so you know Manuel, you know obviously was writing at the time when there were a lot of newly liberated, post-colonial states emerging in Africa and Asia and the, you know you talk a lot about these kind of interesting entanglements between indigenous thinkers in Canada and the United States and the extent to which they look to Africa and Asia as a model like to what extent did they see you know, the paths taken by um, leaders like Julius Nyerere in Tanzania as, as a model for indigenous peoples in um, canada and the united states and australia and others set the colonial context in what sense do they see those paths as, as kind of not really relevant or applicable
0: yeah so this was so if one of the sources of manuel's sort of influence and also critique was this canadian state nation building project of multiculturalism um, another one was his engagement with the decolonizing world um, so his 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 one book, he, he didn't write a lot, unlike some of these other figures, um, but his one book was, it was called The Fourth World. It came out in 1974 and was co-written with uh, C- a Canadian uh, journalist, um, Michael Poslins. And so the idea of The Fourth World, it, it kind of helps to excavate um, some, th- both these similarities and differences in the sense that it was playing on and borrowing from the notion of a third world as a political project of countries who were coming out of their subjection to European colonialism and imperialism. Um, so there was he was signaling, you know, the the borrowing and cross fertilization from those movements, as well as the idea that indigenous peoples also needed kind of their own movement and had their own. Kind of both philosophical and political claims that were that were somewhat different at the same time um, of course the the one of the the central commonality was that both faced versions of European Imperial and colonial domination so you know settler colonization is sort of one along a, a wide spectrum of colonial practices um, Based on resource extraction, land, you know, the expropriation of land, ideologies of racial hierarchy, and, and so on. Um, so, Manuel was involved at, at a politi- political level in setting up the, the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, which was this going to be this, this forum for Indigenous peoples, not only in Canada, but, but around the world. And he met with other Indigenous peoples um, in Latin America and Australia, New Zealand. Um, But he also had the opportunity to meet with East African leaders. Um, so he met with with Tanzania's Julius Nyerere, and he um, read his he spoke with Nyerere and read his writings and speeches. And Manuel really deeply admired what he thought of as Nyerere's egalitarian leadership s- uh, style and his efforts to ground Tanzania's socialist state building project in commitments to the values and well being of basically the rural Tanzanian population, um, still a very agrarian population. Um, and Nyerere uh, famously used the Swahili, excuse me, the Swahili concept of, of Ujamaa or familyhood, um, which he described as development from the foundation of our traditional values. Um, and so Manuel even uh Went so far as to say that what he learned from Nyerere was that we can quote use our culture as the foundation for development for everybody, not just a select few. Um. So Nyerere, I I think Manuel. Um. Although there's no direct evidence of the degree to which Manuel was influenced by Nyerere, it's. Pretty clear that at the very least there were these resonances that Manuel found in what Nairer was thinking, and potentially even um, he might have borrowed some ideas from Nairer in thinking about resurgence. Resurgence being, you know, using these foundations Mm -hmm. of um, indigenous social practices to build a political a, a resurgence of indigenous life and politics, and that really resonated with with what Nayere was talking about. Um, it was also very, um, he viewed Nayere's state building project as kind of a paragon of multiculturalism. It was sort of like the multiculturalism that Canada did superficially. Um, so he said there was a national government that really works for the local people at the village level. Um, Of course, this was the impression of someone, you know, who visited, who was writing from Canada. Um, He was also very, um, you know, Nairi was also deeply involved um, with um, promoting the agenda of the Global South and the Group of 77 and international institutions. And so that was also something that Manuel looked to because he was trying to create a similar kind of set of structures for indigenous peoples um, to be able to kind of collectively influence international relations. Um, Mm. Now, (laughs) um, the the um, that on the ground that's not and i I'll, and I'll come back to this uh, i think we'll 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 come around to a, a kind of similar topic but on the ground that's not actually what was going on with Ujamaa as a kind of bureaucratic state project rather than a, a kind of discourse right um so there there were some some important differences there um, but there were other differences sort of more central to the way that indigenous societies were thinking about their own projects so for one, um, many, uh, Manuel didn't think that indigenous peoples needed to or ought to really form nation states. Um, so, in this sense, you know, national liberation or independence didn't necessarily entail uh, a state. And um, So this idea of growing from our, he calls it growing from our traditional social patterns that in some ways so echoes Nyerere, the goal was to usher in a much more decentralized and place-based kind of ecologically grounded forms of political authority that might be integrated in some way into nation states, but we're certainly not modeled on nation states. Um, He was also borrowing, um, he doesn't mention Gandhi, but he's pretty clearly borrowing ideas from Gandhi about kind of more decentralized communities as part of a broader political order. Um, Now, in practice, like a lot of these thinkers, like on the ground, he was much more pragmatic about engaging with the state and, you know, negotiating and all of that. Um, but these were sort of as part of part of a, a larger vision. Um, I think that the second way that he was different and sort of indigenous projects were different from, you know, the fourth world was different from the third world, as he puts it, was that you know you see in the the transnational politics of the third world by 1974. Um, they, the, uh, group of third world countries put forward the program for a new international economic order, which is an effort to, um, it, it's, it's basically an effort to create a much more redistributive, more egalitarian international economic trade, financial development order, et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly, um, Manuel was very, uh, attracted to this because he, you know, saw that that his own people faced a similar situation of colonial domination, dependency on Western um, uh, finance and, and sort of dependency um, uh, on it, their own resources being extracted as, a, as a way to get out of of poverty. Um, so he, he saw similar dilemmas. At the same time, he also recognized that the idea of a new international economic order really um, a lot of these, uh, Diplomats and leaders were invested in sort of rapid industrialization, right? And so, for Manuel, he um, went so far as to propose what he called in the late '70s he proposed a new world economic order, um, which was an explicit counterpoint to the new international economic order, um, because he said, "Look, you know, there are indigenous peoples in all of these countries who are essentially they're the ones who uh, whose lands." this resource extraction for like intensive industrial development is gonna happen on. Um, So their self-determination, you know, has to either negate the the power of the state somehow or be invested in a new system that wouldn't just empower these new post-colonial states. Um, So there were both these really powerful connections and analogies and sort of uh, conceptual borrowings that were happening at the same time, as um, there were uh, sort of tensions and and distinctions that that Manuel and and others were were wanting to draw there.
1: Yeah, and um, for the listener, I think David saw my somewhat skeptical face um, before when talking about <laughs> uh, learning from civilisation in Tanzania as a model. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you know these it was
0: it was i mean he was not alone among um among (laughs) radicals from north america and europe there's this whole history of these these um you know, especially uh, black radicals and socialists coming to Tanzania like early at the the you know before villagization was really implemented, and just having this very rosy, romantic vision of it. So anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the point. I mean, these post-colonial states
1: in Africa and Asia have come under attack from um, many writers, including myself, for for just reproducing the same exploitative relationship to minorities and the environment through rapid industrialization that existed under European colonialism. Um, And that's true of indigenous writers too. So um, how did a more radical generation of intellectuals in the 1980s, um, what do you call indigenous Marxists, seek to avoid the traps of what they called uh, bourgeois nationalism um, and uh, red capitalism?
0: Yeah, great. So, yeah, so in my fourth chapter, I focus on a, a couple of these thinkers who I uh, refer to as indigenous Marxists, and would also refer to themselves as explicitly as Marxists. Um, one is the the Métis radical kind of scholar activist Howard Adams, and the Stolo activist and and celebrated writer um, Lee Maracle, who unfortunately passed away um, um, just just uh, last year. Um, so by way of background, I think it's sort of important to mention kind of some of the dynamics they were responding to, which was a real um, a, a shift in the way that um, settler states were responding to the kinds of demands that indigenous peoples were making on them. Um, and this was rather than a, a kind of complete rejection of any and all um, demands. Um, they were kind of drawing on the languages that activists were using, um, like self-determination, um, to a greater degree, self-government, um, and sort of using that to implement new kinds of programs. Um, there were new laws being passed. Court decisions were kind of changing in the 70s that opened up um, kind of both a kind of greater space for the visibility of Indigenous peoples in, in, in the broader society um, as well as sought to really um, incorporate um, indigenous peoples into both state structures on the one hand and capitalism on the other. Um, And so they were seeing the language, uh, the vocabulary of self-determination, which they closely associated with the national liberation movements, really being used to promote a kind of, um, both very kind of constrained um, and uh, uh, orient and, and sort of elite-oriented uh, version of indigenous self-government. Now, the difference, of course, from the post-colonial countries is that the, the colonization didn't, didn't really end. There was no sort of formal break with colonialism, but they were still trying to draw um, analogies. Um, particularly, they were borrowing from thinkers like Franz Fanon, um, Kwame Nkrumah, um, the first prime minister of Ghana, and they they use the idea the framework of neocolonialism, which is this idea that um, the the indigenous society is integrated into the circuits of global capitalism, um, and a relatively more powerful indigenous elite, which uh, they uh, Adams are referred to as a red bourge, as the red bourgeoisie, is integrated um, and becomes sort of the the. The mechanism by which international capital is invested in these countries, right? Um, so the theory of neocolonialism that they, they were borrowing from sort of put forward this analysis of how you can both have sort of formal recognition of some kind. And again, it's, it's sort of much more limited in, in the the settler context, um, as well as sort of uh, highly material, unequally materially unequal regimes um, that sort of structurally interfaced with the creation of this this new um, class stratification, like new hierarchies in these societies that really didn't exist prior to that, at least not anywhere near the same degree. Um, so these were thinkers who were, you know, both essentially trying to uh, were were initially involved in pushing a more radical agenda of red power. But then we're also, once that agenda was sort of eclipsed and sort of defanged um, and incorporated into the state, we're sort of trying to um, push forward that more radical grassroots um, approach um, in the seventies and into the into the eighties. Um, so, um, Adams was really emphasized the need to recover kind of radical democratic practices to take a more kind of confrontational stance towards the state um, in line with other anti-colonial movements. Um, Mariko was in many ways on the same page, um, but she really um, interestingly turned to sort of philosophies of indigenous governance as the source, source of political ethics to kind of overcome these hierarchies that were being built up. So she didn't, she, she viewed these hierarchies, not only as a problem by virtue of them being hierarchies, um, but also as a problem because they kind sort of, kind of deeply violated some of the traditional kind of governance philosophies of Indigenous peoples. Um, for her, that would have been uh, the Coast, Coast Salish um, um, peoples. Um, and she also was uh, quite an influential um, Indigenous feminist thinker. So she, re- she was recognizing these new Structures as very much incorporating Western patriarchy in very profound ways, which had you know, been used to dispossess indigenous peoples, um, but also was sort of, sort of internalized by indigenous societies who were sort of reshaped according to Western gender norms. And so she was very much developing, she was very much developing an analysis of these new um, structures as having this kind of masculinist model of leadership kind of built into them that not only was non-democratic, but was um, antithetical to um, more uh, gender egalitarian and and more, um, uh, 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 let's say, a, a, a reconstruction of more traditional ideas to be more uh, emancipatory for Indigenous women. Yeah, look, I think that we're getting
1: to the crux, I think, of the the tensions given this kind of intellectual history. Um, within indigenous thought today, as it seems since this kind of move by indigenous Marxists to critique the whole project of uh, recognition um, by the state, that there seems to be these different strands of indigenous thought, one of which continues to emphasize the liberatory possibilities of treaty and recognition of in- indigenous sovereignty within this, the the settler state within the United States or Canada or, or Australia, between kind of ostensibly sovereign nations, um, one nation is giving reparations to another nation and recognizing its joint sovereignty. And then there's another strand of thought that really emphasizes that the fundamental problem here is the existence of states, existence of capitalism, and that liberation is only really going to be found by dismantling the state system and human claims to proprietorship over land in general. Is is that is that fair to say?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I think that at an abstract level, that's definitely true. Um, I think what I would say is in in most of the cases I see, um, there's kind of a spectrum of positions rather than a, a binary. So So, most of the people, um, so if we go back to Vine Deloria Jr., this was someone who was um, both writing about indigenous philosophies of land and was arguing for the need to recover those philosophies and at the same time was a lawyer who was deeply engaged with contesting the discourses of the state, was you know testifying before Congress. Um, so I, I think on the one hand, I think you know it's helpful to analytically untangle those as kind of having these different tendencies within them. On the other hand, I guess what I would say is that oftentimes, people on the ground are really doing both together and recognize that you know there's sort of both room for uh sort of piecemeal piecemeal reforms and at the same time sort of a broader long-term political vision now of mm-hmm. course there are those who you know are, are at the extremes of of those polls right but but i think that's that's um the kind of what i would what i would um say about about that <laughs>
1: No, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, because yeah, it, it does seem to me that, you know, that, that, that especially radical part of indigenous political thought that um, we need to move to a world of shared custodianship over land rather than a system that we have today of territorially defined sovereign states uh, as a really proper way to organize human society um, is, you know, the most radical part of this whole tradition Um, But, you know, suggestions by the United Nations, for instance, that the Amazon rainforest should be considered something that belongs to all the world, rather than just to Brazil, um, have really fueled right-wing paranoia in Brazil and um, was a big part of the push to deforest the uh, Amazon in the 1980s, and still today. Uh, They're kind of paranoia that uh, the UN or France is going to invade and establish control over the Amazon. Um, so it, it seems to me that indigenous political thought, this idea that we need to rethink sovereignty, and make it about care of the land, care of the rainforest, is key to sustainability and combating cl- climate change. But this kind of notion that we should move towards shared custodianship over uh, the environment poses such a radical threat to the current state system, states like Brazil or Indonesia, that it's really hard to, uh, or the United States or Australia, it's really hard to imagine it ever happening. Uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I I think you're right that, and and part of the argument of the book is certainly that it is an attempt to take these ideas to their logical conclusion in saying, look, if you look at the the logic of sovereignty as a concept, it is antithetical to these other ways of thinking about organizing human society. So the argument of the book sort of it, it certainly leads in the direction of saying you know that that at least at the abstract level these are these are incompatible visions. And so you know I absolutely agree with that. I think in the macro picture, it's certainly true that this would require the kind of a kind of transformation to a new way of implementing and understanding and justifying collective self-determination. Um, it would need to be much more place-based. Um, it would need to be uh, much more based, much more much, much more ecological, much more based on place-based duties. Um, what what I what I will say though um, is that there's a a a transformative element, and there's also a kind of let's say on the ground practical element to this. So we know that indigenous peoples in many places around the world, um, in both global North and South are unrecognized de facto caretakers of lands. Um, So um, for example, uh, a a study that I cite um, in the conclusion of the book, which is this impressive um, GIS study that was published in 2018 in the journal um, Nature Sustainability by this uh, large team of co-authors they show that indigenous peoples manage or have de facto tenure rights over about 38 million square kilometers in 87 countries on every single inhabited continent. Um, and this is about one quarter of the world's land surface that intersects with 40% of all terrestrial protected areas and ecologically intact landscapes. So these, these findings to me were, were just so striking because on the one hand, I think the the kind of transformative vision presented by the book, wh- when we're looking at it from the point of view of states, is quite radical. It represents a threat to bin- the business as usual of colonial capitalism, the state system. At the same time, it seems to me that these kinds of studies suggest uh, that there's so much custodianship that Indigenous peoples are already enacting in a quieter and unrecognized way, Um, both for purposes of survival and flourishing of their own communities in ways that benefit biodiversity, conservation, ecological health, um, and connect those to questions of social justice, food justice, sovereignty. So there's both this kind of more radical dimension and a kind of um, actual sort of here and now um, of these practices that, you know, might be the grounds for some of these transformations. Um, in terms of the question about broader political kind of coalitions and uh, the pushback to some of these these ideas, it's it's such a difficult question. And I'm not an expert in Brazilian politics, but I'll try to say a, just at least a couple things because um, these are questions that sort of have really come out of the book for me. Um, um, so. You know, in terms of um, right-wing kind of nationalist paranoia, um, I don't think there's much of a solution, you know, beyond sort of defeating those groups politically and, and disempowering them. Um, you know, we know sort of more recently that the Bolsonaro administration was kind of an absolute disaster, you know, attacking indigenous peoples in the Amazon uh, and, And this has awful consequences for the actual ecology of the Amazon itself. Um, Now, I think there's a more complicated story to tell with kind of left-wing and sort of more progressive political movements. and there, there's at least more of a chance of opening space for the protection and flourishing of indigenous conceptions of territory and self-determination. Um, still, um, there can be tensions. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that you know states, uh, especially in the global south, where you know if you're wanting to implement social programs, you need revenue <laughs> for those programs. Um, so that exerts a kind of pressure to pursue extraction, which is often on indigenous lands. Um, so that's that's um that's, I think, a, a real tension. i mean, to to my mind, one of the keys is that the global north needs to take responsibility for wider redistribution and reparations for its climate emissions, um to allow, um, you know, to to to, Uh, basically advance significant wealth transfers to the global South. And the goal of this um, would be to allow the political majority of the world (laughs) um, to experience both development and environmental sustainability and not have to be forced into a choice between one or the other to the extent that that's possible. And... That would also, I think, um, on the sustainability side, be a boon for um, indigenous rights and indigenous collective self-determination because the some of the pressure to, you know, engage in these really um, profoundly invasive forms of resource like research research, resource extraction would be um, would be uh, there'd be less pressure to do so. Um, so I think one of the keys kind of, in thinking about the place of indigenous movements um, kind of in the broader um, globe is that is thinking about that kind of potential and and it's, it's, it's only a potential um, coalitional relationship between left and progressive movements in the global north and indigenous environmental movements and thought um, sort of in both the global north and in the global south. Um, so I really, you know, I hope that the book sort of contributes to understanding Indigenous thought in its specificity and its richness, and as a contribution to broader understandings of egalitarian social and political transformation. And now that of course would involve you know questions of climate justice at, at a very deep level so that that is and after all that that was sort of one of the presentist uh more presentist um uh, uh reasons that I, that I wrote the book in in the first place although of course it's, it's a it's a very historical book in a lot of ways
1: no I certainly um got that and it's uh just the the relevance to the kind of defining political challenge of a of this century, um, so well, thanks so much. It's a, uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, what are you, um, what are you working on next?
0: Yeah, um, so I'm working on a book right now. It sort of nicely follows from your last question. Um, I'm working on a book right now called um, "Wages for Earthwork." Um, so, you know, as I, as I was saying now, you know, the the sort of we have this key um, challenge of of climate change. Um, before us, now at, on us. Um, so the pro- this kind of book is really about bringing together some of the positive resonances that I see between projects of indigenous decolonization and efforts to massively decarbonize the global political economy. So in in this book, what I kind of argue is that much of the history and present of the environment environmental movement has been hostile to indigenous peoples in a lot of ways. Um, for example, we see um, even into the present, the major kind of global conservation NGOs, um, they sort of often are involved in uh, sort of, maybe they have some sort of community input listening sessions, but they'll uh, kick indigenous peoples off of their land in the, in the name of sort of saving nature. Um, and what I you know want to argue in this book is that, Indigenous land management, indigenous, um, as we as we were talking about these these different systems of care for the earth, are just absolutely indispensable, and they're indispensable, I think, for for two reasons. Um, the first of the the first of them is is if you want to decolonize, if you want to get rid of colonial systems of governance, as they're baked into all sorts of um, domestic and international institutions um, uh, this, this is this is one of them <laughs> um, kicking people off of their lands in order to save quote unquote nature is certainly um, is, is certainly one uh, sort of legacy uh, ongoing legacy of, of of settler colonialism and other other forms of colonization um, but the second point that I make is they're really, Uh, At a very practical level, um, a lot of these projects that are taking this sort of top-down paternalistic attitude towards Indigenous peoples are (laughs) self-defeating in the sense that if their goals are biodiversity conservation, uh, we have years and years of studies both from indigenous scholars and community actors and from non-indigenous ecologists that show just there's really extensive research now that shows that this is the best way of preserving you know both biodiversity uh you know biodiversity conservation and human well-being at the same time and that you don't really need to sacrifice one for the other or something like that um so what i end up uh, arguing in this book is that we need sort of basically new systems to um, support indigenous sovereignty, uh, and that that needs to be incorporated at a really fundamental into a fundamental way into the way we're thinking about questions of of climate change, and certainly um, what we need to get rid of are systems that are in effect um, uh, play a role in dismantling or or um, Aggressing against indigenous sovereignty, um, not not so differently from you know capitalism itself, um, but this time in the name of the environment and conservation. So I call it wages for earthwork, because the idea is providing support, solidarity, monetary, and otherwise for indigenous sovereignty as a kind of expression of. Uh, and a kind of labor of care for the earth. Um, so that's that's sort of a, a, a part of the the future idea, which very much builds on some of my concluding um, uh, comments in the in in this book, uh, in in remapping sovereignty, on some of the connections I was hoping to draw out um, on uh, to to uh, uh, like d- indigenous critiques of sovereignty and indigenous ways of thinking about self determination and climate justice. So.
1: Wow. Uh, Well, I'm so glad you're working on that. That sounds incredibly urgent and important and I can't wait to read it. Um, But this brings us to the end of the interview. Um, Thanks a lot, uh, David. And again, um, David's book, uh, Remapping Sovereignty, Decolonization and Self-Determination in uh, North American Indigenous Political Thought is just out at the University of Chicago Press. um, And the link can be found on the Um, new books networks page Uh, but thanks again David for um, giving up your time to talk about your book
0: thanks so much Lachlan